The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's take our Bibles, if you would, and open to Psalm chapter 29. Psalm chapter 29, and I'm just going to read this scripture very quickly for you, and we'll get started. So if I beat you to it, you just listen. The psalmist says in Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2, Given to the Lord, O ye mighty, given to the Lord glory and strength, given to the Lord the glory due unto his name, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Our subject is that last phrase, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And you can take the very first part of that last phrase and take that as a command that we are to worship the Lord. Now, last week I told you that there are very few statements that are made in Scripture that are to be taken as suggestions. The Lord does not suggest to us. He commands, and we don't really have an option here. He says that we are to worship. And in fact... In fact, even those that don't have a relationship with Christ are commanded to worship him as their Lord. Now, we all know that, of course, it's impossible for a person who doesn't know Christ to actually worship him. And so we have to take that command to worship the Lord, first of all, as a command of salvation. That what we are to do is to trust in him, to believe in Jesus Christ, and to worship him because he has commanded that. Now, to worship the Lord in holiness, that means that there is a qualification attached to it, and that is that there has to be something right about your life. And the thing that's right, or the thing that's righteous, if you want to use the biblical terms, is that you are a Christian, that you are committed to Jesus Christ. You are submitted to his will and to his way, and you're living a life that is in obedience to him. Now, a true worshiper, then, is actually one who has been made in the image of Christ, Uh, That's what Scripture tells us. We are to be conformed to His image. And that means that we are to exercise all of the graces of salvation that were in Jesus Christ. uh, Things such as love and kindness and forgiveness, forbearance. And as our King James Version says, bowels of mercy and meekness and many other of the Christian graces. And so God has sanctified us and He set us apart in order that we will worship him with that kind of an attitude. Now, what I want to focus on here, as I did last Sunday night, is the acts of public worship. And in some way, all the acts that we do in public can also be done in private. But we're concentrating here mainly on public acts of worship that we do as a church body. Uh, These are corporate acts of worship that are actually commanded that we are to do in the public assembly. And we have to worship as an assembly. That's what the church means. It means uh, an assembly. The church is a visible assembly of Christians. And we're not a church, actually, without that assembly. Now, we can be Christians without assembling together, but we're not the church unless we come together in order for fellowship and worship. And I do believe that if people really understood that distinction, that there would be a whole lot more devotion to the body of Christians that members have decided members of the church have decided to place themselves with, that we would understand that being a church body means we have to be together. You can't be that without being together. 
And so this idea of universal, invisible church really does more damage to that particular doctrine than anything that I can think of. And no matter how much that you argue for that doctrine, I think in some way you're going to diminish the need of the assembly. And then I also think that it's important for us to remember um, from last week's discussion how that New Testament worship for the church is even a higher duty than Old Testament worship was for the people of Israel. Now, the reality raises the bar for us. Now, we, we would understand that in the Old Testament they worship the types and the figures of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it ought to be very apparent to us that worshiping the reality is a higher charge than worshiping the type would be. And so we have a, a, a strong command in Scripture that we are to worship the Lord in the New Testament church. Now, there, there are some people who say, well, you know, I sure am glad that I don't have to live under the Old Testament law and do the things that they did, and you ought to be thankful for that because there's not any of us that want to spend our days uh, sacrificing uh, lambs and goats and bulls and birds. We don't, we don't want to do that. But you ought not to think that worship today is less demanding than it was during the Old Testament times, but rather the burden has been increased on us. We have greater understanding, and so we have greater light, and so greater responsibility. Now, there are mysteries of the faith that people in the Old Testament didn't know about. They didn't understand. They didn't understand anything about the Lord's church. They, they didn't have a clear picture of Christ as we do today. They had no idea what... Jesus would do when he built the church. But we know those truths from New Testament revelation. And so the command to worship God in the New Testament has been increased, not diminished. So God expects more of us because of that greater revelation. And it's also popular for, for us to say, oh, I'm no longer under law. I'm under grace. And that's a very true statement as it concerns your salvation. You're not under law for salvation, but you certainly are under the law for your sanctification. And so that means that every day we have to submit ourselves to God's commandments. And that is indeed what Jesus said. You, you can't be my disciples unless you are obedient to me. And, and, and we need to realize that and think about that to see that our response to God has been intensified by what he's done through grace as opposed to what's been done through the law. And so his grace then is intended to give us greater understanding and greater appreciation for this great sacrifice that Christ has made for us. So we are to be holy in worship and we are to be obedient to Christ. Now again, we are dealing with public acts of worship and the church plays a huge part in your life. In fact, the church pay, plays the biggest part in your life when it concerns living for Jesus. And so we can worship Christ in the beauty of holiness as we worship him together corporately. And so whenever you miss the public assembly, you're missing that opportunity for worship. Now, in the last message, I, I, I had time to deal only with one act of public worship, and that is preaching. And we discussed that as being the priority that we have in the church, the priority of preaching. And I used all of the time that we had last time to talk about that great priority. And why would I do that? Because preaching in the assembly of God's people is the way that God talks to his people. The exposition of God's word is actually the way that we learn about Christ, and that's where we learn what God expects from us. And so we honor God through preaching. Now, when you speak to God, when all of us speak to God, that's a wonderful thing for us to do. But that's not like having 
the wisdom of God spoken to us. Now, I'd like you to take the next statement that I'm going to make in the right way, and I hope you understand how to take it in the right way, that the person who stands in the pulpit and preaches, you to, to, preaches to you the Word of God, that is the most important person in the church. Now, I don't, I, I don't mean that he's the most important person by virtue of anything that he is, not by what I am as I preach to you, but because of whom I preach. That makes what I do the most important thing that we do in the church. It's because, not because of me, but by virtue of the one that I represent. And so when a preacher preaches the Word of God, and note that especially, that is his responsibility to preach the Word of God. When he preaches God's Word, he is God's spokesman. Now in the Old Testament, the prophets would often write, Thus saith the Lord. And I don't claim any direct revelation today. God doesn't speak to us in that way. Everything he has to say to us comes through the Word. And so I know then that when I stand and I preach the truth of God's Word, it is the same as if I can say, Thus saith the Lord. This is God's Word to us. So that puts a tremendous burden on both of us. It puts a burden on me to preach the Word in truth, to uh, preach it substant uh, substantively. I have to do that. I have to be studied. I have to be prepared in the pulpit so that I don't pervert the Word of God. I don't believe that God preserves preachers from making mistakes. And so that also puts a burden on you. And that is that you have to listen to what's being said, and you have to go to the Word of God, and you have to examine that and see if that's what the Bible really says. And I don't believe that the name of our church is coincidental. As you well know, in Acts chapter 17, when Paul was preaching in Berea, that the people checked him out. They were good students of God's Word. They checked him out to see if he was telling the truth. And I can assure you that if you have to check, they had to check out the Apostle Paul, you have to check out me. Listen to what I say and then check me out to see that what I say is right. And I'm not offended if you do. And I've told you this many times before. I want you to check it out to see if there's anything that doesn't match. And if you find something that doesn't, then you need to tell me. But I have to caution you about that when you do, before you begin to criticize what's preached, make sure you can defend what you think is right. Now, I don't say this pridefully, but most of you know that it takes a lot to move me off one of my positions, and that's the way that you want it. You don't want a preacher that's pushed around by many winds of doctrine and doesn't know what he really believes. So if, if, if I'm that way, you want to get rid of me. But you do want to check things out. And you want to make sure that what I have to say from the pulpit is God's truth. And so I have to have substance to what I say. I don't want to waste your time with stories and uh, personal opinions. I don't want a church that's like the one that the author of Hebrews complained about. Let me just read you what he said in Hebrews 5, verses 12 through 14. It says, For when for the time you ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now there is the key factor to what we're trying to do here, and that is to get people to the place where they can tell the difference between good and evil, and that's the key factor of worshiping the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And so preaching is designed to get you to that place. And, and 
you're not going to get to that place if you're listening all the time to preachers that like to tell stories or read from the new newspaper or preach their sermons out of Christian psychology books. So you need the Bible. You need messages with doctrinal content. And the Bible is a book of doctrines, and so I've not done my job, and you haven't completed your job until you're able to articulate the doctrines of the Word of God. It's those doctrines that help you to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul said that was his main purpose. He said, uh, my, my main thing here is to know Christ, to preach him, to know him and the power of his resurrection. So what you learn from preaching then is, is very important. It is my responsibility to give you something to learn and your burden, as we talked about last week, is to listen and I know some of you think that listening to me is too great a burden to bear. I realize that, and I apologize for it. But they complained about Paul. Many of them said, you know, we'd rather listen to Apollos. And I, I, I'm sorry, but you don't have Apollos here. You have, you've got me, and so you need to listen. Well, if preaching is a priority, then it ought to be easy for us to understand that listening is also a priority. So you're not going to increase very much, learn very much about how to worship God and live for Jesus if you don't, if you don't listen to the preaching. Now, I, I need to go on from that or else we're going to spend another Sunday night on the subject of preaching. So let's go to the next act of corporate worship. And number two is public prayer. Now, prayer is an intensely private matter. You remember that in Jesus' times of prayer that often he would go away by himself. And he'd spend long hours praying all alone. And that night that when Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he was betrayed, you remember that he took Peter, James, and John with him. But as he went into the Garden, he went a little bit further on. The Bible says a stone's throw away from them. And there Jesus prayed and he was alone with his heavenly Father. And uh, the disciples that went with him, Peter, James, and John, they didn't hear what Jesus had to say. They didn't see him as he fled before the fathers. He arrived on the ground in agony, dealing with the prospects of the cross that was coming. He wanted to be alone with his father. And the disciples, as we learn, wouldn't have heard him anyway because they preferred to do what Jesus told them not to do. Instead of staying awake and praying, they preferred to sleep. But private prayer, that is, of course, very valuable to us. And, and all of us have to have that times of private prayer. Jesus said, you, you've got to pray so that you don't fall into temptation. In our church statement of faith, we have a covenant that says that every church member agrees that they will maintain secret devotions. And there are other parts of that statement that, that say that you're to pray for your pastor and pray for those in leadership. And so private prayer is very important for a Christian. Uh, that's a source of power as we live for Jesus. But prayer also has its public application. And what I would do is encourage you to read the Bible and read, for instance, that great public prayer that Solomon made when he dedicated the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. And then you might want to read the public prayers of Moses for the people of Israel and then we have many examples in the New Testament where the church met together for prayer. In Acts chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, uh, the disciples it's talking about here and being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hath made heaven and earth 
and the sea and all that in them is. In Acts chapter 2, after the sermon on Pentecost, the Bible says the disciples continued steadfastly in prayer. In Acts chapter 12, you read there of a church meeting where the disciples met together and they prayed that Peter would be released from prison. The Apostle James tells us that public prayer is immense, immensely valuable to the church. In James 5.16, he said, Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And you remember that James there was referring to the prayers of Elijah and prayers that were so powerful that he was able to stop rain for three and a half years. You know, I think there must be an Elijah somewhere in California that's been praying that we might not have any rain. And probably when we decide to repent of all the wickedness that this state has done, then maybe he can start praying again and God will send the rain back. But Elijah is just this one man, just one man who prayed and he prayed with the power of God and the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, it says, avails much. And so we need to think about that. Just think about how much prayer would avail if we had many, many, a whole church full of righteous people that were praying together. And see, that's the key. Righteousness and holiness, that's the key. And that's what it takes to have power with God. Well, prayer, then, is a, is a powerful tool in worship. Prayer unleashes the power of God in his people. Now, you know, I, I'm just a little bit skittish to say it that way, especially in light of that charismatic sign that we have out front. But the charismatics have, have so abused this kind of language that sometimes we're afraid to talk about the power of prayer. We're afraid to talk about that very thing, that prayer unleashes the power of God in our lives. And you may ask me, well, how do you know that? Well, I know it from some simple statements that are made in the Bible. James said that you have not because you ask not. If you would ask, then God would give you what you want. I know it because of what Jesus said to the woman at the well. He said to her, if thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink. Thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Now, you can't get more powerful results from prayer than that, than to ask for the transformation of a dead soul into a living one. Well, Jesus said, you just ask me, and I'll give you living water. And so the power of God is unleashed in dead souls through the power of prayer. And as it says here, that springs up into everlasting life. So we know what prayer can do. We've seen what prayer can do. It does great things. We have a long list of people that are on our prayer page on Wednesday night, and we're careful to report times that God has answered prayers. I think maybe some of you have never seen or you've never even used that prayer page. There are 40 or so people that gather on Wednesday nights that use that prayer page, and we just think, just think how many more good reports that we could have if all the members of Brian Baptist Church would pray for people on the prayer page. You know, I can't help but think of what God did for that little church over there in the Philippines. Uh, Pastor Bouquet's sent out an email, and this was right after the um, typhoon had hit there and destroyed, completely destroyed their church, and he sent out this email and that was kind of a blanket email that he sent out to many different people. And by God's providence, one of those emails came to us. I'd never heard of him, 
Never heard of his church, didn't know anything about him, and he didn't know us personally. But God put us together from many thousands of miles apart, and the Brian Baptist Church became a blessing to that church. And that's what prayer can do. And I wonder sometimes if an earthquake were to hit here and this building were to come down, do we actually have enough power with God that we could pray for help and we would receive it? Well, prayer makes a difference. Fervent, righteous prayer, holy prayer unleashes God's power. And that's the value of corporate prayer. Now, I remember when I was very young that in our little country church in Kentucky that we would meet for two weeks before revival meetings and we would go into the homes of members and we would pray. And so for two weeks before the revivals came, uh, before we had a revival, I remember that we would pray and when the revival time came, the church would be overflowing with people. There would be so many people that they stood on the outside on these hot, humid summer nights where we had no air conditioning and they stood on the outside and they looked through the windows and they listened through the windows because they wanted to hear the Word of God. And we started that, as I said, two weeks prior with prayer meetings in the members' homes. And I, I tell you, I can remember what that was like when I was five, six, and seven years old and my dad would take me to all these prayer meetings. And they were long, long prayer meetings. And I would have to sit there, being that young, and listen to these long, long hour, two hours of prayer time, usually that or longer. And... Um, as a five-year-old child, I had to sit there and listen to all of that. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, I wasn't like the normal five-year-old childs, or abnormal, I'm not sure which, but five-year-old children that you have today that you wonder, how in the world are you ever going to get this kid to sit through two hours without making a ruckus and a noise? And Well, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I mean, I, I had a plan for the prayer meetings. I had a little Timex watch with a second hand on it. And when those farmers would begin to pray, I would start to time them. And I would keep a record of how long that they prayed. And so if they ever needed um, an Olympic timekeeper for Olympic praying, I'd be the one that you'd call on because I'd know who'd get the gold and the silver and the bronze and so on for praying the longest prayers. But that was my method of doing that. But I want to tell you something about those men. There wasn't a theologian that was in that bunch. None of them were theologians, but they could sure pray pray down a revival on that church. Now, you don't see very much of that anymore. Um, we don't meet for two weeks of prayer. We don't have two weeks of revival meetings. And that's what we did twice each year. Uh, twice each year. He has 14 days of prayer, 14 days of preaching. And so, in effect, you have two months out of the year that are dedicated to prayer and to preaching. Well, we don't do that anymore. But I'll tell you this much, the least that we can do is to meet in God's house on Sunday and be here for both services, for prayer and for preaching. I mean, after all, it's the Lord's Day, isn't it? Now, we're one of the last churches in the area that has a, has a service on Sunday night. And I say that even knowing that next Sunday night we're not having a service, so you'll forgive me for that. But uh, normally we do have a service on Sunday night, and we're one of the last ones that do. Now, another passage on public prayer is found in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 where it says, be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. What is it we learn from that passage? I think one of the things that we learn is that prayer is desirable to God. 
I mean, Paul is writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's talking to us about prayer and how we ought to pray, and that tells us then that God wants us to talk to him. God loves the fellowship of his people, and he wouldn't tell us to pray if it bothered him. He wouldn't tell all of us to pray if he wasn't going to listen to what we said or if he's too busy for us. And that's really something to think about, that God is not overtaxed, even though he runs the entire universe. You know, one more duty assigned to God is no more or less to him because he knows how to do everything, and it doesn't bother him because all of God's people are, are praying to him. And he's not worried he has to handle too much. It's amazing that he has so much to do, and yet God listens to every prayer of every faithful believer. And then a second thing that we learn from that passage is that prayer encourages others, that prayer blesses others. I mean, why do you think that people want their names on the prayer page? They know it's a good thing when people are praying for them. They're encouraged to know that other Christians are praying for them. And many times there are members of the church that have come to me and they knew that the church was meeting in prayer, for instance, on a Wednesday night and they couldn't be there and they would come and tell me, I felt that presence. I felt that God was doing something. I really knew that God was doing something because God's people were praying for me. So prayer blesses God, and prayer blesses others. And then thirdly, prayer blesses you. Paul said here that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, is yours when you pray. And so what God can do with prayer is settle your mind. He can keep your heart calm when you pray for others. I mean, when you know that you've had a part in helping someone through prayer, that you've joined in the corporate prayers of the church, doesn't that make you feel good? Aren't you, don't you rejoice when, when you hear those reports of praises that God has answered prayer? Well, God certainly does know what, he talks, what he's talking about. He knows how good that prayer is for you. And that doesn't mean that you even have to pray for yourself to feel good. Just praying for other people, that speaks peace to your soul. So how do we pray corporately? How do we do that? Well, I don't ask everybody to come to the platform to pray. Usually in our public prayers, you'll hear me, you'll hear Dalton or Gary. Sometimes one of the other men will pray, but not very often. And, uh, and sometimes some, some of our men aren't comfortable with coming to the platform to pray, and uh, they don't like to pray publicly, and I understand that, although I do think it's good for us to learn to do that. It's a good exercise for it. But I'll confess to you that Many times when I go to other churches and I'm not asked to preach, very often I'm called on to pray. And I do do that. I would never refuse to pray, but I'll just confess to you, I, I, I'm not really like a whole lot to pray in public with people that I don't know in other churches. I mean, I, as I said, I'll do that. It's not a ta real overtaxing thing, but it's not the most comfortable thing that I do. I'd much rather do the preaching. So you have people that, that preachers that attend other services and they're not called on to preach, but they're called on to pray. And so they know they've got their shot at the pulpit. So what they do is they come to the pulpit and they preach their sermon in their prayer. But your prayer time, public prayer time, is not the time to preach the sermon. Prayer time's not for sermons. And I'll also tell you this, that public prayer is not the time for you to confess your personal sins. Now, I remember the story once of a deacon that was called on to pray and he came to the pulpit and I guess he was extra burdened with some sort of guilt that he had. He felt really guilty and so he went into this long prayer of confession 
where he mentioned his evil thoughts towards some of the women that were in the congregation. And not only did they, he did that, but he named names. And you can imagine that people were squirming and very uncomfortable about that. And so when he was through, he said amen, and he walked down from the platform, and the pastor got up and only had one thing to say. I don't think I would have said that. That's all that he said. Well, I'm not going to call on everybody to pray. Corporate prayer doesn't mean that all of us have to pray out loud and all at the same time. Now, there are charismatic churches, of course, that do that. And uh, everybody's praying or preaching at the same time. And remember, the Apostle Paul said, well, if someone comes in and they hear you doing that, won't they say that you're crazy? Doesn't that sound a little bit odd? So he says, that's madness. So we're not getting involved in some kind of a jabber session in our, in our public prayers. So we don't all pray audibly in corporate prayer. But we don't really need to worry about that because God's not confined to hearing audible prayers. He hears everything that's spoken from the heart. And what you do when there's public prayer that's going on, the thing that you should do is listen. And not only should you listen, but you should make that prayer your own. And you should concentrate on what's being said. And you ought not to wonder. Let your mind wander. You know, some people look forward to the prayer time. Leif and I were discussing this just the other night, that you come in on Wednesday night and you're really tired and used to be, you know, we've had this, this class that's interactive now, so that might keep some of you awake. Uh, others, maybe not. But uh, most of you stay awake. But you remember when I used to be preaching a long sermon on Wednesday night that people would come in and I think they look forward to the prayer time. They closed their eyes and they took a little nap while, while the prayer is going on. Well, that's not, it's not the time for you to take your nap. It's not the time for you to check your cell phone to see what emails have come in and send out a twit, uh, twit or whatever they call those. What do they call them? Uh, tweets. Tweets. Send out a tweet and, and all that kind of thing. Send out the text and so forth. That's not the time for you to do that. You're to be listening to the prayers and, as I said, make those prayers your own. God's not going to have any trouble listening to you and who's ever speaking at the same time. So when the leader prays, you pray. And what that does is it intensifies the prayer. So what we have is maybe a hundred Elijahs, righteous people that are praying and that all of us praying together corporately, that intensifies the prayer. We're pleading with God. And do you know why amen is added at the end of a prayer? Everybody know why amen is there? That is a sign of agreement. We all agree with what's being said. We say, so be it, let it be. And I'm not sure that maybe what we shouldn't do is to end all of our public prayers with everybody saying amen. And maybe we might start doing that. We all just say amen at the end of a prayer, and that shows that all of us are in agreement. Well, I don't have... Yes, amen. Now, I don't have very much time left, so I'm, uh, I'm going to end that public, on public prayer. And we're, we are going to have some lessons on, on personal prayer a little bit later because that is extremely important for us in living for Jesus. So I don't have very much time left, but I want to get started with this third act of public worship. And we'll just dip into it a little bit here, and then we'll continue uh, in the next session in a couple of weeks. But the third thing that we do in public worship is making melody. The third part of worship is singing. And some people might not be too happy that I waited until third to get to singing because they think that music is worship. That's all there is to worship. And the singing is the worship service in total. So whenever you talk about worship, that's the first thing that comes to their mind. They think about the singing. 
And I'll talk a little bit more about that later and, and in the next message. But we do have a command in Scripture for public singing, and, and that's found in several places. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, and he commanded singing when he said in Ephesians 5.19, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now that's instruction for the church, and we know that because Ephesians is considered to be the consummate church letter. I mean, without doubt, Paul is speaking to the church here. In chapter 4, for instance, he speaks of ministry and the order of ministry in the church. And then he goes on in chapter 5, and there he talks about our walk with the Lord, which is perfect for us in this study because that's really just alternate terminology for living for Jesus. When you talk about how do you walk with Jesus Christ, that's just the same terminology as living for Jesus. Well, we see that verse number 19 in uh, Ephesians follows up verse number 18 that all of you should know, and there is the command that we are to be filled with the Spirit. And so I think it's interesting that immediately after saying be filled with the Spirit, that Paul writes that next verse. He talks about singing. And singing is a natural response to the Spirit's control. The Holy Spirit energizes our singing. Now, I love singing in the church. And as with prayer, you can sing privately. You can sing privately. I was talking to Joshua there just a moment ago before church, and I said, are you singing? And he said, no, I don't really like to sing publicly. And I said, well, I'll sneak up on you sometime, and I'll hear you sing privately then. But this is, a, this is really a, a natural response. And, and, but we can sing privately. I, I'm sure many of you sing in the shower. The acoustics are great there, and you sound, you sound really, really good. And you know that you do. So you, you sing in the shower, and maybe that's just a, a way of saying to us, God showing us how much good it is for us to get cleaned up in our spirit, get cleaned up righteously, to have a washing of regeneration, as Titus 3.5 says, and that'll set us to singing. Now, when you feel good, you want to sing. That's just a natural response of God in your heart. So Christians ought to be singing people. There isn't a better feeling than knowing Christ as Savior, is there? I mean, that, that's something to be happy about. That's something to sing about. And how much good can it do to have a whole church full of people that love the Lord and they want to sing in worship to the Lord? But music, that's, that's really a tough area for me because I don't like very much what's been, what's been done to singing. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, in some churches, music is the worship. I mean, if, if you're taking notes here, you might want to capitalize that, all of that, the worship, that's what they think. And there's so much emphasis that's put on music that people can't even enjoy church unless their kind of music is being sung. Churches have what they call worship pastors, and that is a term that I utterly despise I don't like the term worship pastor. And I wonder, why is that applied to the music man? Why isn't that applied to me? Why can't I be the worship pastor? I mean, I'm the one that has the priority of worship, don't I? So why aren't I called the worship pastor? But they don't, they don't say that. It's the guy that does the singing. Brother Dalton's the, Brother Dalton's the worship pastor, I suppose. But then another conflict that I have over music is how that music is used to market churches. People are drawn to music and that's why it's been such a it's been the go-to tool to to build a church 
Now, if you draw people with music, if that's, if that's the way you're going to build a church, then what kind of music are you going to have to use? What music are you use to draw people into your church? Well, are people enticed when they know that what you're going to sing in church is churchy music? No, they've heard that. I mean, these are people that listen to Funky Chicken all day long or something, and, and uh, you're not going to get them into church with that kind of music. And so what you have to do is you have to alter the music to be the kind of music that they like. You have to give them something that they can, that has a, you know, that, 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 that strong beat to it and to get them shaking and grooving and just, just get them involved in that. And, uh, you know, I could go on with all, all night with that kind of stuff, talk about what people have done to music. But there are some churches, I mean, there are churches that teach wrong doctrine, so we, we don't really expect them that they would not be, they'll be immune to messing up music. They teach wrong doctrine, so sure, they're going to mess up their music. But a sad thing about this is that there are also many churches that I think that are teaching right doctrine, and yet they care very little about how that doctrine is presented. Now, it's really a, a big thing now for Christian artists to put doctrine, and I'm talking many times doctrines of grace, into rap songs. Now, the minute that you convince me that rap is either artistic or is music is the day you come and put me in a straitjacket. Uh, because that, that's not music. I think if you listen to that, it's going to ruin your taste for what music actually is. So you ought to stay away from that altogether. The presentation of what we have to say in that music is very, very important. And you can't take music that's been invented by filthy, cursing gangbangers and put God's Word into it and expect that you're going to have the right thing. I mean, it's, it's important not only the lyrics that you have, that's extremely important, but it's also extremely important that you have the right kind of music. There also has to be a sweetness to the sound of what's being conveyed. And so we need to look at it that, maybe this way. What would you imagine that singing in heaven is going to be like? Anybody here imagine hip-hop in heaven? I don't, I don't think so. And our music that we sing now would be best if we had some kind of reflection of what's being done in heaven, I think. Now, I, I don't really consider myself to be a, an expert on musical styles. And what I'm, not, I'm not saying this, that my music has to be your music. And, um, and I'm not going to argue that all church music has to exclude a definable beat, that you could never have a drum in the background, that that's an evil thing. You know, a few, a few years ago, we had these accompaniment, accompaniment tapes that we used. I mean, that was before we had CDs and things. But we had this whole box of uh, accompaniment tapes that had no discernible beat in them. And when I used to sing, sometimes in the church, I'd try to take a few of those and sing. And there was just no way I could sing to those tapes. There was no beat to be found. That was the BJU sound, or what used to be the BJU sound. And it has no beat to it whatsoever. Well, you know... We're not going to get in, get in the dirt and roll around on things like this because we have a difference of opinion in those kinds of musical styles. But what I do know is this, that there is a line that can be crossed. And I may not be able to define for you exactly where that line is, but I know when we're approaching it, and I know when we've gone too far, and that's when it has to stop. You know, I read an article from a pastor the other day that was just going off on this issue because... Uh, there were many independent Baptist churches that were using some of the very same music that we use. 
some of the new songs that we're singing, these churches are using. I'll just tell you, in particular, this author was complaining about uh, and criticizing the Lancaster Baptist Church because some of their songs are more contemporary. And I'll just tell you this, a song doesn't have to be 500 years old to be good. Songs that have good content and are sung with good music, those are fine. But we know that there is a line that can be crossed. We, we, might, we don't want to cross that, but that doesn't mean that, you know, music that has a drum in it, and I'm not talking about, you understand what I'm saying, a music that has a drum in it, that has a guitar in it, or something like that, a, a fiddle, that doesn't necessarily make it bad music. It's how those instruments are played that makes it bad music. But let me wind down my thoughts for tonight by saying this, that when you model your singing in order to draw crowds, then the spirituality of the worship is ruined by the crowd that you get. Now, if you have a crowd that's all about the buzz of the beat and they care nothing at all about the priority of preaching, I don't care what you do with them in music, you're not going to get a good spiritual crowd. That is impossible. And you're not likely to hold a crowd and get them to listen to anything substantial in preaching when you do that, when your marketing is the music, because now the tone has been set. And what you'll almost always find in those kind of churches is that the preaching is kind of syrupy, that it's all gooey, and, and preachers preach on the level of Hebrews 5 that we just read a moment ago, and that is they preach nothing but milk. They don't know anything but milk. They don't like anything but milk. And sadly enough, what they're giving you is sour milk. Well, we don't want to be a church like that. I mean, we want, we want to be a church that uses music correctly. And I'm through complaining for tonight. Uh, we're going to talk some more about it next week. But there, there's a lot that has gone wrong in the church, in worship, and music is certainly one of those areas. And when you do it wrong, your worship and holiness is going to be affected by that. Now, you can do it corporally, and you can do it right. Worship is to be dictated by God. We have to remember that. God is the one who says what worship is. And so we'd better get with God's plan if we want to live for Jesus. So we'll come back next time, a couple of weeks, and we'll talk a little bit more about what the Bible has to say about the criteria for singing, what is involved in the right kind or making the right kind of melody when we sing. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you tonight for the privilege of opening up your word. We thank you for the scripture that we read in Psalm 29, that we are to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us a holy people and that we would uh, make our public prayers right, we would make our preaching right, that we would make our singing right, the making melody right, Lord, that it would be pleasing to you. So make us the kind of church that you'd have us to be and show us how every day that we can truly live for Jesus and live for him as we meet together in our acts of public worship. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org